Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. I'm your host, Tyler Stanley, and... I'm Gerhard Steuben. We are uh, interviewing Dr. Adam Wynn today about his book, Reading Mark's Christology Under Caesar, Jesus, the Messiah, and Roman Imperial Ideology. Yeah, first, thanks for having me, guys. I'm really honored to, to be on your podcast, and I'm excited to talk about the book. Um, yeah, I'm Adam Wynn. I teach New Testament at the University of Mary Hardin Baylor, and my formal research focus is focused primarily on the book of Mark, but also on the New Testament and engaging the Roman imperial world. And new projects I'm working on, I actually have a historical fiction that is uh, completed and will be coming out in about a year. Um, just I think it's going to copy editor today. Um, and let's see, I'm also working on a new project on um, early Christology. Yeah, early Christology and understanding early Christology in light of um, developments in Second Temple Judaism. Uh, I'll just leave it at that for now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, we are excited to discuss this book with you. We really enjoyed it. Um, and it seems like everybody else who's read it's enjoyed it. Um, listen, read a bunch of reviews as well as the book uh, leading up to it. So we're excited to talk to you about it. Uh, leading into it, what motivated you to write this book? And how does it fit into maybe your previous work, including like your dissertation and whatnot? Yeah, great question. It, the book is definitely related to, closely related to work or previous work. Um, I wrote my dissertation on Mark's Gospel, uh, published it in 2007 in a book called The Purpose of Mark's Gospel. And, uh, with uh, it's, it's published with Moore Zeebeck in their Voon 2 series. And it has a similar, I mean, there's there's a lot of similarities between that, uh, except there's one part of that book that I feel like I, that I, that I missed on, I guess, uh, that I got wrong. And so feedback that I got from other scholars uh, made me very aware of that. And so, which is, you know, but part of this field, uh, <laughs> recognizing when you've when you've missed something or mis misunderstood something or uh, yeah, made a misstep, and so um, I wanted to fix that. Uh, I wanted to fix that, and I, I can I, I guess I can talk more about that a little bit later when we talk about kind of the uh, kind of what this book is about. Um, but yeah, it really grew out of a mistake that I think I made in earlier work, and so I saw an avenue to correct that mistake, and um, it grew out of that, and. Yeah, I mean, it really grew out of earlier work on Mark, making a mistake there, and then seeing a yeah a way to fix it. Um, yeah, and I, again, I'll expand on it when I talk more about what the what the thesis of the book is, and then how that connects to the earlier work. I think that's probably the easiest way to do it. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, sounds good. Do you let's, want me to start yeah, there? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, what, let's what do is that. This book? Yeah, that's great. So, so I'll, I guess I'll just say my 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 dissertation was arguing that Mark's gospel was written. Um, in response to Roman imperial propaganda, essentially, that Mark was writing after um, 70 AD, at, shortly after the destruction of the temple, that Mark was written in Rome. And so my strategy in that book was to kind of reconstruct the setting that's going on in Rome at that time. And that setting involves the rise of a new emperor, the Emperor Vespasian. And Vespasian comes to power in 69, uh, 69 CE. And he fought he's the he's the fourth emperor in a series of, of four that have that have risen and fallen in one year so it's called the year of the four emperors nero dies um then you have uh galba and otho and vitellius and they all uh one one rises one falls uh, you know three months two months four months whatever they rise they fall and then you have vespasian and vespasian has the largest armies vespasian ends up some, uh, ends up being uh, the winner he beats beats vitellius and then he uh right then he's the new emperor of rome um but he has no real legacy he's got no family history he's actually a plebeian i think he technically well um yeah he's a plebeian that rises to power this doesn't go you know this is he's a new man in politics um, a plebeian and, meaning he's oh yes a plebeian meaning he is lower than the senatorial patrician class he's a, he's he's a, he's a lower a lower class Roman that's kind of risen through the ranks um, and so Meyer it it, it seems histor historians point out it seems he starts churning out all this propaganda to kind of justify who he is he has the largest armies so he has absolute power um, but 
you know, the, the people before him had large armies too. And so, sure. you know, yeah, you have the largest armies, but how do you kind of justify why you should be in charge? And so he starts spinning this propaganda. He starts developing a narrative where the gods have, where it indicates that the gods have given him the divine right to power. And, and various things play into that. Um, there are these portents and prophecies that he is seen to fulfill. Um, even the historian Josephus has made a prophecy that he will become the emperor, and he does become the emperor. It's an interesting story. Um, he also, uh, there's propaganda related to miracles. So he heals people in Alexandria. One of the miracles is that, that he heals the sight of a blind person, and he uses spittle, right? Which is will connect to the book and the Gospel of Mark. And then he heals a man with a withered hand by touching it. Um, that's another example. Um, he's a generous benefactor. He gives food to the people and feeds people. When he, when he when he comes to power, Rome is is has like a ten day uh, ten day supply of grain left in the city, and so he shows up and and he brings grain from uh, from Alexandria. Egypt is the personal property of the emperor, so he brings his grain from Alexandria, distributes it to the masses, gives them lots of food, those kind of things. Um, and another major issue is theology of victory, which I should talk about just a bit. Um, in Rome, when traditional um, means of succession to power didn't work, and this is not just Rome, this is throughout the ancient world, um, whoever wins, that shows whose side the gods are on, right? That's called the theology of victory, and it, and it demonstrates that, and Vespasian plays on this, right? He has just won this major battle against in a civil war, but he also has defeated the Jews um, in their rebellion. And so he sees this as divine leg legitimization. He promotes it as divine legitimization. Um, even his son Titus that takes over after him 10 years later is, is, is playing on the same ideology. And it's a really a part of their, their birth narrative, the, the, the legitimization of the Flavian family. Flavian is the family name of Vespasian. And so all of this, and so all of this is going on. So, so, so I asked myself, okay, Marcus, if Mark is being written into the shadow of all of this propaganda, oh, I forgot the biggest piece of the puzzle. Uh, I, <laughs> I was just going on. Another one is this, Vespasian, it appears, the Vespasian claims to the fulfillment of Jewish messianic prophecy. Um, that Jewish, and there, you have three historians, you have Josephus and you have Tacitus and you have Suetonius, all of them make the point that the Jews thought that their scriptures pointed to a Messiah, some sort of deliverer who would save them. This is why they rebel. Um, this is why they revolt. And all three of them say their sacred scriptures didn't really point to Messiah. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but didn't really point to a Jewish Messiah at all. In fact, they all pointed to Vespasian, who became emperor in the East in, on Jewish soil. And so he is truly the fulfillment of Jewish messianic prophecy. And I've argued that this, and 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 many classes, uh, classicists argue that this is probably a part of Vespasian's propaganda. He creates the narrative. He promotes the narrative that that he's the true fulfillment of this and circulates it. Well, that has implications for Christians, right? I mean, obviously he's usurping the, the claims of of Christians. Christians are going to say, no, Jesus is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Um, so so I argue that it's very likely that this kind of propaganda, this Vespasian who's very powerful, persuasive, giving these good things, doing miracles, fulfillment of prophecy, claiming the fulfillment of Jewish messianic prophecy, that that would create a crisis for the church. Um, would, it create a cri would it create a crisis for Jewish believers? Probably not. They, they're not going to be persuaded by some pagan emperor. But what about fledgling um, fledgling Christian converts that are Gentiles. Uh, I, I think it could cause wavering and questions and concern, um, especially in, yeah, this is pretty persuasive propaganda. And, and you know, what, who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow the, the emperor that's put the world right again and has all these impressive credentials? Or are you going to follow the crucified um, Messiah that, well, he's not back yet, and they keep saying he will be, but he's not there. And so, I mean, I, I think there could be this kind of crisis that the church is facing that requires some sort of response, right? Um, in addition, missions, right? I mean, if the church is going to engage in mission in Rome and in mission in this world, well, one of the obstacles is going to be, well, you know, I thought that this Vespasian guy is the fulfillment of all this prophecy, right? So there's these obstacles that require kind of some sort of Christian response. And so what I propose is let's read Mark as that Christian response. Um, let's read Mark as Mark's narrative as a as a narrative that is shaped to address that reality. Hmm. Um, and so, and let's see if the pieces fit together. Does it make sense? Does it work? And I mean, I think the whole book is essentially arguing that it does work. That the pieces fit really. The Mark when you read Mark from that perspective, the pieces fit. There's many pieces that fit particularly well with that perspective. And in general, it gives a lot of meaning to to Mark. A lot of what I just said there, you can find in my dissertation. 
the thing that I had a trouble with in my dissertation was Marx Christology. And, and, and people have recognized in Marx Christology um, kind of two halves. Marx's first half is a power. It's all first half of Marx Gospel, one through eight. Jesus is powerful, doing uh, healing people and casting out demons and walking on water and, 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 and multiplying loaves. And there's almost no hint of suffering at all. Maybe like a, there's, there's a handful of little seeds of, uh, of, of, of foreshadowing, right? That kind of thing. Um, but then you get to that halfway point and then the gospel seems like it shifts. Right? And so people have been trying to figure out, Mark and scholars have been, how do, you, how do you deal with these two halves, right? this Christology of power that dominates the first half and then what seems like a Christology of power on the second half. And in my in most, I'd say in the last 20, 30 years, maybe the last yeah, 40 years, um, most scholars have emphasized the suffering. Mark, is the, Mark presents the suffering Jesus. That's the primary Christology of Mark. And in my dissertation, I went the other way and I said, I, I followed, um, I'm going to blank here. Um, shoot, uh, uh, Robert Gundry, uh, Robert Gundry's Mark and Apology for the Cross, and he argues, no, it's all power. And so I followed Gundry, right? And I went that direction, and I said, no, I'm going to go with Gundry. This is the one area where I got rebuked pretty strongly <laughs> in my dissertation, and I think it was good. It was, it was the rebuke was was a good rebuke, and I learned a lot from that. And 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 so I was like, okay, what do I do with this Christology piece? How do I work out this Christology piece? And I just kind of went back to the table and started digging a little deeper into Roman, uh, you know, the Roman sources and, and what was going on in the Roman world at that time and learned a little more about Roman ideology. And that's kind of where this book, you know, I, I found an answer, I think, that works with all those other pieces, all that Vespasian stuff. It works. But then Mark's kind of power and suffering, I, I, I saw in Roman political ideology the possibility of bringing Mark's power and suffering together and... If in this response to Vespasian, that Mark would be able to use this, this, this kind of Roman political ideology um, to explain and contextualize Jesus' suffering and death in light of his power. And so I see um, this Roman political ideology as a bridge that kind of brings this together. And that probably is the most unique contribution of this book, arguing that that when read from the perspective I proposed in my dissertation, you actually find a way to bring these two pieces together in a way that is coherent and i think that's fairly unique i think a lot of other readings of mark have not been able to do that well um and this this does, this book i think does that not all are persuaded obviously but uh <laughs> but i but i think anyway so i've talked a lot did that yeah. follow-up questions on that for sure uh could you maybe describe the way in which uh this book brings together those two seemingly uh opposed halves through Roman ideology, yeah, maybe what you talk about with benefaction in the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I learned a lot about Roman political ideology here. I think most people look at Rome as a as a promoter of its own power, and that they would see themselves as this dominant force in the ancient world. And that the and, and that the and most I think when you think of emperors, most people think emperors they associate them with kings, right? The emperors like a king, and emperors like a monarch, and emperors an absolute power. And with Rome, the story is more complicated than that. It, eventually, that's true. Uh, when you get into the into the later second, third, fourth century, that's very true. But Rome, we have to recognize Rome's history as a republic to begin with, and Rome's a republic for over five hundred years, and it's a republic that hates monarchs. Right? There is this kind of anti-rex, anti-rex is a Latin for king, anti-rex, anti-king uh, language. There, they don't like kings. Um, their history has this very negative view of kings. Uh, they rebelled against kings, right, to become a republic, and then you have this 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 republic. Uh, you have a republic that has kind of like uh, our president, only they have two consuls, right, and they serve together, and they serve for one year, and they have to work together with the senate, and all of this is organized so you don't get a tyrant who's able to abuse power, and you know. But uh, over time, I won't give you a, uh, nobody needs a real history lesson here. But over time, that starts to break down, and certain people amass more power and more power. Julius Caesar is probably one of our best examples of this, right? He he amasses absolute power, and eventually, and the senate essentially kills him, right? They kill him because he's amassed too much power. They they think they're liberating Rome, they're restoring the republic from this tyrant who's been ruling over them this this dictator um and so then you get what, what you, you essentially um then then once he's dead then you get this this new uh guy that comes along augustus right was the adopted son of julius caesar and augustus learns i i, I mean I'm, I'm simplifying a lot of complicated history but i think you can summarize it in saying he learns from the mistakes of the previous people who tried to get absolute power and he develops a game essentially a political strategy it's kind of a strategy uh that will often be called recusatio right the, 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 he um and what this does is he 
he has absolute power, right? Augustus has that. He, he controls the military. He can do what he wants, but he um, resists non-Republican honors and non-Republican, and he uses Republican language to describe himself. He describes himself as restoring the Senate. And he rules, how would, how would you say it? He, he, he rules as somebody with, with absolute power, but he presents himself as somebody who does not to try and appease the Roman sensibilities that reject that kind of language. So the emperor is first among equals, right? He's the, he's the, he's, um, he's a prince. He's not an absolute authority. He is the father of the country, but he's not a rex or a monarch. He doesn't, and he rules based on, um, kind of reverence as opposed to absolute authority. And he tries to serve the people and he puts the needs of the people ahead of him. He dresses like a common citizen. The good emperor does this. Augustus does this, uh, dresses like a common citizen, tries to all the laws doesn't present himself as one over the law now once you get this is all in rome by the way once you get outside of rome things are different doesn't uh is is it talks about how he had um didn't allow statues to himself in the city or worship unless it was also to the goddess roma as well this kind of thing and had statues of himself burned it's this kind of humility motif that says to everyone i'm showing you that i'm not a king right i'm trying to play in your sensibilities and then good emperors kind of follow augustus's pattern and there is a there's a there's a quote in the book from Seneca that really captures this well, um, and I, I can't remember the exact words, but it talks about good kings being those who flee from glory, or good emperors being those who flee from glory, um, good emperors being those that sacrifice themselves to the state instead of the state to themselves. Uh, it uses the language they prefer to be conquered rather than to conquer. Um, and that's all capturing this Roman imperial ideology, where the where the where the ideal ruler is one who doesn't um, promote themselves, one who sacrifices themselves. And in see, reading all this, it all all these all this made a lot of sense, and thought that sounds an awful lot like Mark. In fact, or it sounds an awful lot like the Mark and Jesus. In fact, this language of preferred to be conquered rather than to conquer sounds an awful lot like Jesus, who comes and says, "What the Son of Man didn't come to." Um, be served, but to serve, right? And, and that conquering language is really talking about serving the people. And so what I argue is that Mark, uh, and I do this in much more detail in the book, uh, but what Mark is doing is he's drawing on this political ideology and he's drawing on the fact so far through the first eight chapters of Mark, I argue there's this impressive resume. Um, Jesus heals better than Vespasian. Jesus um, provides food better than Vespasian. Jesus um, destroys legions better than Vespasian, and commands and destroys legions better than Vespasian. And there's more good stuff on that we can talk about later. Um, and, and that he, uh, you know, what, what, oh, he, he uh, walks on the waves, which is a motif. Commanding winds and waves is a motif associated with Roman imperial power and in Greek power and all kinds of things. So anyway, the, all of this is showing he's better, he's better, he's better, he's better, he's better. But eventually you have to deal with, the, with that embarrassing fact that Jesus died on a Roman cross, right? So how does Mark deal? He's, he's all along going and showing Mark, Mark and Jesus is better. Mark and Jesus is better. Mark and Jesus is better than Vespasian. Um, and then you get to, and then, but what do you do with his death? What do you do with Jesus' death? And what I argue is what Mark does with it is he contextualizes it in the terms of Roman political ideology. Um, and he argues that, that the ideal ruler would do exactly what Jesus did. Right, the ideal ruler would lay down his life. Um, now, and, and I argue that Mark ten forty two through forty five is really Mark's culminating statement in saying this, where he says, "You've you, you've heard uh, the, um, those." I'm trying to remember the, the language off the top of my head. Um, those who rule over you, lord it over you, and act as tyrants over you, but it's not so among you. Mm -hmm. I, I'm this is uh, the the Adam one paraphrase. Um, <laughs> um, but those who desire to 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 be first uh, must be last of all, and those who retire to be who desire to be great must be servant or slaves of all. Um, and so what I argue, and then says that for the Son of Man did not desire to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I argue that that is really drawing on political ideology that Roman readers would get. And they'd understand that Jesus is presenting himself as an ideal ruler, and that in doing that, what he's doing is contextualizing his own death. Jesus is contextualizing his death, and Mark is contextualizing Jesus' death in terms of ideology. So Jesus dies, or will give his life, not because he's weak or powerless, but because he's powerful. And the right way to exercise that power, from a Roman ideological perspective, is to exercise it in service and sacrifice. Um, and in this way, he out-Caesars Caesar, right? No, no Roman emperor actually gives his life for anyone. No Roman emperor, I mean, this is a game that they play, and some Romans recognize it as a game, and some might not. But 
what it's showing is that Jesus takes this ideology to its logical extreme and in doing so is greater than. That's what I argue Mark's doing. Um, so would you... Yeah, go ahead. Would you say that this is anti-imperial or would you just say that it's uh, helping question. helping Gentile uh, Roman Christians not make the mistake of thinking Vespasian is the Messiah? Is he just using their language to help them or is he saying this is the ruler over against the imperial ruler? That's a, yeah, that's a great, okay, I want to say both. Both. In some ways, yeah, I want to say that Mark is... I had a conversation at the last uh, Society of Biblical Literature meeting. I was talking with somebody about this, and, and he kept saying that Mark's not anti-empire. And I'd say, I agree Mark's not anti-empire. He's anti-Rome's empire, and he's pro-Jesus's empire in the kingdom of God, right? So, so absolutely, I think Mark is saying um, Jesus, not Vespasian. Mm-hmm. And in saying that, he's also trying to make a—and he's making that case— for his readers to say, and look, here's how you can see Jesus is greater than and the right one to follow and the Vespasian is the wrong one to follow. So it's both it's both anti-Rome's empire and pro-God's kingdom mm-hmm. as Je- and Jesus as the ruler in that kingdom. So I'd say it's that. Mm-hmm. It's not trying, it's not, it's not uh, you know, I don't think it's anti-imperial in the sense that it's anti the concept of empire. It's anti, it's anti the wrong empire and pro the right empire from the author's perspective. Um, and it's also trying to help the reader see through all these little connections that Jesus is greater than. And I'd say that is implicitly anti-Vespasian, which would be implicitly anti-Rome. Does that help? Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. That would be my take. So but that's my... how I propose it. <laughs> this may be... Um beyond the questions that the book raises, but does Mark have anything like a positive view of government um, mixed in with his Mm. anti-imperialism? Or is he Mm. um, more seditious than that? It's a good question. I don't think think Mark has... I mean, I don't see anything in Mark that's very favorable to... Well, I'll say this. I mean, I do think Mark sees something of value in the Roman political ideology. Right. I mean, I think he bar- I think he uses it. I think he says something in it, and that he and and in it he uses it to show Jesus as being greater than. So I think Mark would say see something of value in the political ideology. Although he probably would say that he, probably I don't know that he thinks Rome is using it well, mm-hmm. uh, or that Rome is living it out. Jesus is greater than that. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, so so yeah, I think there's something Mark's able to use from that mm-hmm. um, to pull an example. From that, that is a a central theme that I think most people see in Mark is uh, the call it the Markan secret. So right. Jesus kind of don't tell anyone who I am. So you've already mentioned a little bit about this. Don't don't uh, revel too much in your glory. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I will. I, actually, yeah, that is a good thing to talk about because I because I also yeah I also read the Markan secrecy motif. Very differently than most people read the Mark and Secrecy motif. And the Mark and Secrecy, there's lots of different explanations, but I think kind of the dominant one is one that says something like, Jesus is like, this Secrecy motif is a literary device meant to conceal Jesus's identity until after his suffering, because Jesus is primarily understood in terms of suffering. And so you can't properly identify him until the suffering is complete. And then you have this, you know, or around the crucifixion is when you get these full affirmations of who he is. And I don't buy that at all. <laughs> I think the secret is broken many times throughout Mark. I think um, I think Mark, it's, it, it is very obvious Jesus is a powerful figure. I think it's very obvious Jesus is the Messiah to, to both characters in the story. So anyway, I I push against that. And, and, and I, I draw on the work of uh, David Watson, who has tried to argue that the secrecy motif isn't about secrecy at all. It's really should be understood in terms of honor and shame and patron and clients in the ancient world. Um, where a person, society structured around a patron or a person of higher social value or, or a, um, uh, status that helps somebody beneath them with benefits. And in doing that, it increases their honor. And so what he proposes is that when people see Jesus in Mark's gospel healing someone and then saying, shh, don't tell anybody about it, the reader wouldn't understand him to be 
keeping a secret. In fact, Watson argues that Mark doesn't use the language of secrecy that would be that's prominent in the Greco-Roman world. He argues that the, that language really isn't found in Mark. So what he says, the reader would see Jesus is rejecting the honor that he has achieved by healing. He says when Jesus heals, he instantly becomes a patron. And the person that's the that's the that's the client, the person healed, should reciprocate by praising Jesus and exalting Jesus and spreading the news about Jesus everywhere. And what does Jesus do? He he cuts that off. He says no. He rejects it. And so what you have is Jesus rejecting public honor. Um, and when Jesus is given a, a title like "You are the Son, Holy One of God" or "You are the you know some some sort of exalted title," you are when his disciples say "You're the Christ" or "The Messiah," he says don't tell. He says don't tell anyone. And so my argument is that's ascribed honor, or Watson argues that's ascribed honor, and Jesus is resisting the ascribed honor. So he resists achieved honor through healing, that he gets through healing, he resists ascribed honor. And so the argument, and then, so Watson wants to say that in Mark's gospel, Jesus is kind of circumventing or turning upside down honor, shame, um, markers. The odd thing in that, the tough thing about that argument is that many times Jesus plays by the honor-shame game, right? Jesus is, doesn't deny honor all the time. He doesn't always keep things secret. I mean, he, he allows himself to be recognized as a significant figure at many places in the text. And so the question is, and this is the problem with the secret for most people, is it's inconsistent. Right. So so I propose what, what I thought was interesting is when I learned more about Roman political ideology, it gave me a lens to say, oh, well, maybe this Roman political ideology helps us understand what Jesus is doing. Um, because and I tried to look what I, well, the way I set up my argument is to say where if people are seeing Jesus publicly resist honor, they're going to be trying to look for some sort of paradigm for understanding that. And there aren't many in the ancient world. Honor. It's, there's very rare to see anybody want resist honor. But there's one paradigm, which is really interesting, and that is Roman emperors, right? Augustus is playing this game of recusing himself from certain honors, and good emperors who follow him do the exact same thing. So Augustus is offered certain titles. He says, no, 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 no. Augustus is offered certain honors, and he says, no, 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 no. And this is part of the game. And so what I essentially argue is the mark and secrecy motif is really a mark and humility motif, and that Jesus is presented as God's appointed ruler, and that when presented certain honors, he resists those honors, um, as an ideal ruler would do. And so again, it's part of this out Caesaring Caesar kind of thing. Um, yeah, so I so I see the mark and secrecy motif not as about keeping secrets at all, but really about Jesus. I, I, it's it's just one more line in the impressive resume of Jesus as he out Caesars Vespasian, right? Mm -hmm. it, and 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 it accounts for the occasions when Jesus is able to get honor because or, or receives honor because the emperor doesn't deny all honor the emperor takes some and rejects others and so jesus is kind of doing that same kind of thing that was that's my that's my theory that i propose in the book you uh mentioned the section and um, well you did on the podcast earlier and you write about it in the book um so that section of the adam Lane translation that you quoted yeah uh the um the rulers of the gentiles all that stuff yeah yeah um it's so Jesus gives his own um, anti-Vespasian imperial power as a model for the disciples. Uh, how does that play out in the maybe theology of um, discipleship? Like how do uh, how does Mark expect his readers to follow Jesus's model in yeah, that that's sort a, of way? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think Mark is. I mean, that teaching in Mark ten forty two through forty five is too. Two disciples, his disciples, disciples who are going to be leaders, by the way, right? I mean, in Mark, it's pretty clear that the 12 are prominent and important. And Jesus, I think, is is telling them how they should lead. And the way they should lead is to follow Jesus's example of leading, right? Um, and this, I think, has ethical ethical implications for how we live, how leaders lead. It may be, may be relevant for, uh, I don't know, 21st century America. Um, and how we lead, right? I mean, but but Jesus says, how do you lead? You you lead in humility and you lead it with sacrifice. And you, I mean, this is, I, I, I th and I think those are things that, that have been drawn out by other readings of Mark, but I think this ties it much more closely to, um, I, I think some people would say, well, this is the way, and I do think it's certainly the way Christians should live, but it really specifically, I think, in Mark is tied to how leaders lead, how, how Christian leaders lead. Um, I mean, this is, this is, and, and they're to model it after the way Jesus leads, which is, you know, you, you, you live, 
that, that Roman political ideology, you live it out to the extreme, right? You out, outdo them in that and in, in humility and sacrifice and service and those sorts of things. And that's, that's really the heart of the central section of Mark, which is, you know, Mark 8, 28-ish through um, 1045, 10, yeah, 1045. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that's how, I, that, I think there's a powerful message there for the church. So that's and, sort of... And our own political leaders, right? Maybe. <laughs> Anything else you want to say on that? Or no, you leave I'll leave it right there. <laughs> you know, people can connect their own dots. Uh, so we talked just now about maybe Mark's theology and ethic, um, at least one aspect of it. How do you see Mark's um, theology and ethic fitting into a larger canonical um, theology yeah. and ethic? Yeah, that's good. I, I, that's a good question. Um, I think the entire, well, much of the New Testament, uh, uh, many of the New Testament authors are trying to negotiate Jesus's identity as God's appointed ruler of the world mm-hmm. and Messiah. Um, and, 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 and if you want to go with more of an early high Christology, you're even dealing with more than that, right? Um, and his death. They're all negotiating this. They're all trying to explain and for 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 readers how this works. Um, Paul Paul will do it in his way, and then and in John, you know, it's this glorification, right? Um, his 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 hour of glorification. Um, so suffering is really glory. You know, there's all kinds of different ways of thinking, and this is Mark's way of. Neg- I mean, this. So what I'm trying to point out is Mark's way of negotiating that, mm-hmm. um, and Mark. You know, and so I think that's important, and it fits into the larger voice of the text, which is trying to hold those two things and say these two things aren't problematic. Um, and and I, and and I wonder if there isn't some of you know I've wondered if maybe and I think some people have pointed out some connections between Roman political ideology and Philippians two uh, five through eleven or something like that that maybe there's something some mm-hmm. connection there too. Um, but I see it as is part of a larger. The larger witness that's trying to say the crucifixion doesn't mean Jesus isn't God's appointed ruler. In fact, um, we can understand that can crucif- crucifixion. It, maybe maybe it would maybe it would even you know Paul talks about uh, the cross's foolishness mm-hmm. um, to those who are perishing, but it's to, to those who are being saved. It's the wisdom of God, and and Mark offers his own way of understanding that wisdom. Hmm. Right? It's mark. It's a mark and expression of that wisdom. Maybe we could say. Okay, yeah. Um, so that, do you see that as like a contrast with Paul then? Because like Paul is saying this is foolishness to the world. And from what I understand your argument is uh, Mark is using kind of the the wisdom of how to be a good emperor and saying that this is, even by the world standards, this is the cross is like the logical end of good leadership. Yeah. So would you say they're contrasting okay. here? That's a good or? question. Are they in contrast? Yeah, that's a good question. Does does Paul or does uh, cause Paul even talk about how how um, I'm, I'm getting outside my field a bit here, um, but it seems like Paul will talk about how for the for those who who are being saved, they see, they they get it, they get that it is wisdom, mm-hmm. right? So so even Paul will say it's wisdom, mm-hmm. but it doesn't look like wisdom to the rest of the world. I think. It, yeah. it's, it's not wisdom according to the world's standards, yeah. and 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 maybe maybe Mark is saying it is if you look at it this way. Hmm. So that um, Paul saying the general world standards, not necessarily tying it to good emperor propaganda, which is itself sort of a countercultural thing. Is that? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it is. It isn't for Romans. It isn't countercultural for Romans, right? Uh, but there is there is the the point I'd say is Mark is certainly pushing it to the extreme. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah. So, so what I would say is maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm 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 just really speculating. I mean, I haven't really thought a lot about this, but but Mark is pushing it to an extreme that that what I say what I say in my book is if you were just a Ro- if you were standard Roman that had no previous connection to the gospel, you wouldn't be convinced by what Mark is saying. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. But if you've already in some way encountered the crucified Jesus and and embraced that, and then you were wrestling with what to do with it, Mark might give you a good answer. 
Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so maybe Mark is in some... So, so yeah, in some ways what Mark is saying isn't something that if you said it to Cicero, Cicero, oh yeah, it makes perfect sense, right? Yeah, no, yeah. he'd say, what well, you're crazy. That That's clearly shameful. You can't look at crucifixion. That's ridiculous. But if you said it to somebody who was in the midst of struggle hmm. and was already... There was something persuasive about this Christianity, but I'm really struggling with that crucified Messiah bit. Um, and I And I... Well, you just gave me language to maybe Mark. You just gave me language to maybe help you understand that. Mm-hmm. Does that does that yeah. make sense? And so that's kind of the way I think of it. And so in some ways, it is Mark helping see the the wisdom that they might not otherwise see. Maybe yeah. maybe that's a way of thinking about it. Yeah. I, if I thought about this more, maybe I'd put these pieces together slightly different. But I'm you know <laughs> I, I haven't. Your question about how does it fit with the rest has just kind of uh, stimulated these thoughts. Um, th- so this conversation actually kind of takes us back to the beginning in trying to understand what who is Mark writing to and and what is he doing because kind of the traditional view that I grew up with is this is a gospel tract like for lost people to this is the story of Jesus so now you should be a Christian so would you say this is rubbing up against traditional readings of mark or yeah okay um yeah i don't know it just i guess you're kind of asking about audience a little bit is mark yeah. written for is mark written for christians or is it written for non-christians i i think and i don't know what the tradition i mean i i, I most new testament scholars are going to say mark's a christian document written for christians mm-hmm. um that mark is written to persuade christians and i think and i think that's likely mm-hmm. um not that it wouldn't couldn't be read by non-christians uh but that it's going to be more persuasive is an in-house document yeah. right um and that mark's and a, i mean i think mark is probably using traditions that most of the church is familiar with and he's playing with those and and and, and altering those and organizing those ways and do what does what he wants to do um so i would say mark is written for christians and i think most as far as as far as what tradition has said about that i'm, I'm not sure i uh I don't know. Maybe, maybe a, it was just it, my upbringing. Did you? I think that's that? pretty common in modern evangelicalism, which is where I grew up. Right, and me too, <laughs> and me too. So, so yeah, so uh, so, but but I think as far as I don't know if historically, I mean, you guys would know better. You're the you're the you're the church history people here, so I don't I don't know. I'd have to go back, but I I kind of think that church fathers treat Mark as if it's a Christian document as rather than a, a, a the earliest track, but I don't know. I the earliest tradition I remember is. I think this is the fragments of Papias who says that oh, Mark yeah, yeah, yeah. just wrote down whatever Peter remembered in no mm-hmm. particular order. And no, yes. And then that was expanded by Matthew and Luke. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to get, yeah, okay, in the tradition in Clement, uh, Clement of Alexandria, I believe Clement says talks about how the people of Rome really wanted... Yep. The Christians really wanted a story, Mark, to write them a story of Jesus. And so he writes it based on the teachings of Peter. And then I think in the tradition, he even goes to Peter and asks. So, mm-hmm. so Clement puts it before Peter's death, which I think Clement's wrong. Uh, <laughs> I, I lean towards Irenaeus, and Irenaeus thinks that it was written after, says that it was written after his death. Uh, so I think they disagree there. Uh, All I, of this, by the way, listeners, was the bone we're throwing to you who came on here to listen to stuff about patristics. That's right. So this is still a patristics podcast. There you go. It's, Absolutely. It's the earliest early Christians. Yeah. That's right. We're going, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Deep down. Uh, so, so uh, and, and so, yeah, I guess I guess if you're going to go a tradition like Clement of Alexandria, uh, he would say, he would probably say for Christians, they were the ones clamoring for this to be written. And then mm-hmm. Mark did it and then went to Peter and Peter said, oh yeah, you did a good job. Um, <laughs> well, well done. Um, so, something that I think our listener base might um, be interested in is that so that modern scholarship is actually saying Mark was more intentionally crafted than the earliest uh, Christian writers assumed that yes yeah that's right in fact more than more than any reader of mark has assumed probably prior <laughs> to the last century sure. um it's the sophistication of mark well no probably the last 50 years the sophistication of mark has been greatly undervalued uh by the earliest church right i mean clearly papius is trying to uh explain what he thinks are weaknesses in mark and say yeah. well you know you don't reject it it's you know it's it's tied to peter and even though matthew's better some you know <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. that kind of that kind of thing um 
So, so yeah, I think what has been recognized, first of all, with the rise, I mean, this is my first chapter lays all this out too. We were kind of talking about what's happening in, in you know, biblical scholarship. You get what are called the redaction critics who were, are taking kind of stuff that the reform critics were working on, reacting against some of their conclusions and saying, the reform critics would say, oh, well, the gospels are just these, a bunch of, a bunch of independent stories that, uh, that, that some compiler just compiled together kind of haphazardly. Um, just like beads on a string is the is the, the popular image, right? That the, the form critics used, which is sort um, of what Papias gives us, right? Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. Papias and the form critics, I guess, are kind of on the same page <laughs> there a little bit. And and then the redaction critics come along and they and they should argue that no, the 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 authors are really intentional in how they're they're blending these sources together and how they're crafting their own theology by the way they weave these sources together. And then the development on top of that is narrative criticism, and narrative criticism says they're more—they're more brilliant than you think they are. They're actually—they're <laughs> they're actually weaving together these brilliant narratives, right? And so this is kind of where we're at now: is narrative criticism, which is something. I mean, so I would put myself in the line of narrative critics. Some narrative critics wouldn't put me in the line of narrative critics, but that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yeah, it's really looking at the narrative artistry, and the narrative artistry of Mark is brilliant. I mean, Mark is, and, and I think he's weaving together a brilliant narrative, but he's also weaving together all these kind of strands that are responding to the world around him and the crisis around him, and yeah. So, so I think the assessment, the ancient assessment of ancient and uh, up until not too long ago, uh, assessment of modern scholars is wrong. That Mark is highly sophisticated, brilliant in many ways. Um, is brilliant. In the way he crafts his gospel is is, is John and and, and Mar Matthew and Luke, um, or 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 at least worth considering in the midst of them. <laughs> yeah, this may be an unfair question, but it just strikes me now. Uh, do we have any ancient examples of writers that are as uh, creative as Mark that you can think of off the top of your head? Is he really just genuinely a brilliant oh, okay, writer? So no, okay, yeah, that's. There are more brilliant. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, yeah. I mean, I, I, then uh, Mark is okay. So when I say Mark's brilliant, I, I would also say, um, yeah. I mean, there's there are far more sophisticated authors than Mark. Form like as far as the form of the narrative goes. Yeah, I would, I would, yeah, I would say so. I would okay. say so. Yeah. So, and first of all, I'm not a classicist. Um, Neither are we. Yeah. So, so, but yeah. I mean, everybody. You know, classicists are going to attribute uh, much more literary sophistication to to other. Authors. I mean, Cicero and Seneca. And I mean, they, 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 you know, there's uh, you know the other ancient historians, Plutarch, and um, trying to think of uh, Lucian, uh, which is a satirist. I mean, they, they're brilliant. They're brilliant. They're probably all smarter than Mark. So, <laughs> so let me then let me say, Mark is a far more. Um, intelligent and, and thoughtful in crafting his narrative than people have recognized him. I don't want to say that puts Mark at the elite level in the ancient world. He's not. Okay. He's not that. So, okay, let me backtrack and say, let me qualify by saying, <laughs> and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of authors smarter than Mark are more intelligent than Mark and, and probably more creative than Mark. I mean, or, uh, oh, oh yeah, Virgil's Aeneid. There you go. That's okay. one. That's a brilliant rewriting of, uh, of, of Homer's, you know, Iliad and Odyssey, right? So, I mean, there, that's, that's, more sophisticated work <laughs> um so yeah Mar i mean so yeah so that mark's drawing in this tradition but relatively relative to what people have thought about mark he is <laughs> so that's what I, that's an important qualification yeah. uh so this is getting off topic too so do you have anything no on this is uh uh so you address one of the more perplexing passages in mark and that is the casting out of the demons from the demon-possessed man and Gerasa, yeah, the yeah. Gerasene demoniac. So Jesus casts the legion into the pigs. So can you address this in the book? And I'm sure our listeners will be interested because that's just such a, a weird story. Can you tell us what the heck story. is going on if we're and how a an imperial reading can inform us and make sense of that story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, let me say this. The pieces that I'm about to assemble here for you in this story are not pieces that I identified myself, nor did I come up with. So they are. there are many other Markan scholars that have identified this stuff. I have just taken it and put it into the context of a larger um, framework for reading Mark, and it fits really well. And I think it, 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 I think it works really well with the Vespasian, anti-Vespasian reading. So yeah, in, in the Gerasene demoniac story in Mark 5, Mark 5, 1 through 20, um, Jesus encounters this demon-possessed man, and he's 
described as having incredible power and nobody can bind him with chains and he's he's crying out at night and he's, he's very it's, it's really a picture of a suffering tormented um individual right it's a really kind of tragic picture that mark paints and he paints, paints it more vividly than i think any of the other gospel authors who borrow that or get that story from him um and then he and then there's this dialogue between i mean jesus dialogues with the with the demoniac the demon possessed man and the, this famous you know um Jesus asks the name of the demon, and the demon says, uh, "My name is Legion, for we are many." Um, and I think that Legion is a. The, many scholars have pointed this out. That Legion reference to Legion is a is a um, a, a clue, a flag in the text. It's it's pointing you to Roman imperial realities. Uh, legion wasn't just an idiom for a lot of something. I mean, we might say, I have a legion of problems or whatever. I mean, we might use it idiomatically, but in the ancient world, it referred to Roman military units. And so here you have a demons that are identifying themselves with Roman military power, right? I mean, we, we are legion. Uh, and, and, and connected to this man's torment and connected to this man's power, right? I mean, it's all tied together. Um, and then Jesus, then they beg not to be cast out and Jesus, or they beg, they, yeah, they beg not to be harmed. And then Jesus, they ask, I believe if they can be um, uh, driven into the pigs and Jesus drives them into the pigs. Well, throughout the story, there's also a number of like, uh, there's language that's militaristic. They, they ask not to be driven out of the territory, mm -hmm. um, which seems like it's uh, this kind of occupying a, a region or something like that, a military yeah. unit, a legion occupying a, a region. And so they ask not to be driven out of that. Um, the the word that's used for the horde of pigs is a, uh, I believe a word that's commonly used to describe a horde of soldiers. Um, I'm going from memory here. Um, and then you also have the language of the pigs rushing down the hill. That's the often language used to describe soldiers rushing into battle. So you have all this kind of militaristic language in Mark and the Legion language. And then the very interesting detail is where the story takes place. It takes place in Garissa. And, uh, well, there's a text critical issue, um, but I'm going to say most text critics put it in Garrison, the region of Garrison. So I'll, anybody that wants to debate that, that's a whole other debate, but we'll go with Garrison. <laughs> um, and that's a region where, uh, that was significant in the, in the revolt, uh, the Jewish revolt and Vespasian and his 10th legion. Um, Vespasian isn't commanding, he's commanding the 10th legion, though it is not in Garrison commanding this group, but he is ultimately responsible for them, right? And so this 10th legion goes in and they destroy Garrison, they destroy the city. Um, and what's very interesting is they go in and they destroy it and they, on their banners and on their shields, the 10th Legion has a boar, right? So here you have a story where Jesus destroys a legion of demons and, he just, and as he, he destroys them by putting them into pigs, right? So this legion of demons bearing pigs is destroyed by Jesus in a region where Vespasian commands a legion of demons that bears the image of pigs and destroys that city. And this is not coincidental, right? This is not accidental. Mark is drawing on, I, I'm, I'm convinced, drawing on this situation and in some ways presenting this as Jesus's, well, who does Jesus defeat? He defeats the, tenth, the, the legion of that bear boars. Who, whose legion is that for the people reading it? That's Vespasian. So you have this kind of symbolic, I think, defeat of Vespasian. And in this story, it kind of adds, this is, adds to Jesus' impressive, impressive resume. Jesus is able to command the legion, defeat a legion of demons. Um, but then you tie it to Vespasian. Who is he defeating? I think it's a symbolic defeat of Vespasian. And in some ways, a reversal of what... What happens in Garrison, right? It's this, it's, it's this deliverance of Garrison. They were defeated by Vespasian's legions, and now what do you have? You have Jesus reversing things and driving them out. Um, so I think there's all, I mean, I, I think it's fascinating. And I think it's, I mean, you know, some, some people have not read it that way. Now, many have not read it that way, but I, it's hard to deny the symbolism and imagery that's there. And what's interesting is if you read Matthew's gospel and his telling of that story, he's completely depoliticized it. Mm -hmm. There's no legion language. There's no. Uh, there's none of the poli political militaristic language. Um, it, it's it's very. It, it's almost as if Matthew. I don't know. I, I could be wrong. I've speculated on this, and who knows? I'm speculating, so I could be wrong. Uh, but it's almost like Matthew sees the the, the, politici the uh, politicizing that Mark is doing in this story, and he and he's like, I don't want to. I don't want anything to do with that. And he just kind of <laughs> gets rid of all that stuff and tells a version of it that's much. You know, it's much different. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know.
I, I feel I feel like Matthew often depoliticizes Mark, but um, maybe I just have eyes to see that because of my bias. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so anyway, that's that. That's the story, you know. You have the strong parallels, and I think it, it really hooks the story to Vespasian pretty strongly. Another one that hooks it to Vespasian really strongly is what I mentioned earlier, right? That Jesus healing a man with spit, um, and healing a man who has, you know, uh, a withered hand. And Vespasian does both of these things. And Tacitus, who writes after Vespasian's life, tells us people are still talking about these miracles to this day, which probably is hyperbolic in some way, but uh, but at least it tells you they were remembered. And and in telling, if Mark is writing to Christians living under the shadow of this propaganda where people are talking about their emperor who heals people. And what did he do? Oh, he healed the man in spittle. And oh, he did this. Um, you know, I think we, I think it's a pretty, when they read Jesus doing that, uh, it's probably, I think it's hard that they would miss the connection, right? Uh, that they would not see that. And that, uh, and that again, and, and what does Jesus do? He, he, he matches Vespasian and he surpasses Vespasian. Um, let, let me let me make one comment on that because uh, often I'll teach this in class and the question will be, are you saying that Mark made up these miracles to respond to Vespasian? I, I'm not saying that. Um, there are some people who read it and do say that. There are some who would read that, but, but I don't think that's a necessary conclusion. I think Mark is probably drawing on Jesus' tradition that, of healing that, work, that fits his, his purposes and he puts them to that puts them to that use um now uh might might uh ancient biographers i think mark's an ancient biography at times could, could manipulate details and things little things like that I, I, or you know rearrange uh the the furniture of a story so to speak you see matthew doing with a mark story you see mark doing with a or luke doing with a mark story you see those things and so maybe mark can can you know maybe tweak details to to, to highlight what he wants people to see but but I, you know, I, I, I'm of the opinion that Mark is probably playing with known traditions as opposed to creating traditions. Hmm. That would be my take. Um, anyway, I think that's just as plausible. In fact, in fact, I think it's more plausible because I think in constructing a gospel, um, and I'm, I'm a pretty firm believer that, that the traditions that most of the gospel authors are using, they're using traditions that the church knows already. Uh, that have been circulated. These are Jesus stories that people know. They, 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 you know, they are aware of these Jesus stories. And if Mark is going to create a gospel that departs radically from those, um, uh, and he presents an unrecognizable Jesus, I, I don't know how persuasive that would be to actually accomplish his goal. Right. Interesting. Um, so if he wants to uh, respond, I think he needs, he's, he's limited. He can't just start making stuff up. He has to kind of work with the tradition he has and use that tradition to, to get them to see what he wants them to see. That would be my take. Uh, anyway, you didn't ask that question, but it often gets asked. So I wanted to say something about it. Yeah, that's great. Um, a follow-up question to the discussion of the Boers yeah, yeah. in the 10th Legion. Uh, so as I was reading... As I was reading reviews um, of the book, which again are overwhelmingly um, great, one thing that I came across, um, especially Niljay Gupta mentioned uh, why if uh, this is a response to Vespasian, is there not a more explicit reference to Vespasian yeah, um, ideology? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that sort of critique and why do you not buy it? First, let me say uh, thanks to, to DJ for uh, for uh, reviewing the book, and it was really a kind review, and I really appreciated it. And he's he's a great guy and a great scholar. Um, I'll say so. Let me I'll answer in a let me see I'll answer in a few ways. Yeah, I, I, this is a, this is a common critique of people who read, a, you know, are kind of seeing anti-imperial things in New Testament texts. Is why isn't it more explicit? One, I would say that it's that it's not safe to be explicit. And the more we learn about how colonized people or oppressed people, people that are, that are oppressed by foreign powers respond to those foreign powers, um, it's very infrequent that it is done in a direct explicit way. Hmm. Right? I mean, they, it is usually done in clever, creative, subtle ways because, because it's, it's dangerous, right? I mean, it, it, the power that you are subverting or pushing back against doesn't like that to happen. And so if it becomes obvious that you're doing this, it becomes dangerous if somebody, you know, so you want to be clever in the way that you do it. You want to be subtle in the way that you do it. I mean, apocalyptic literature does this all the time. The book of, nobody argues that the book of Revelation is not arguing, is not, um, 
well, very, very few scholars would argue that it doesn't have Rome in its sights, right? I mean, it's very negative towards Rome and its empire, but it never mentions Rome once. Yeah. Rome is Babylon, right? I mean, so, so there's this, it never does that. Why? Because, because that, that's, first of all, it's not part of the genre, but also it's, uh, but also it's just not the, it, it, it's, it's, you want to protect yourself a little bit. So I'd say that's one element is, is probably there's some level element of self-protection. Um, the other, the other thing is that he's telling a Jesus story. Jesus never didn't was born before Vespasian, right? Jesus didn't know <laughs> Vespasian, so so you can't have Jesus speaking to Vespasian. It doesn't make sense. You're, you're right to, to respond to the propaganda of this emperor and the idea that he's greater than who you greater than Jesus. And actually, Jesus is not a fulfillment of messianic prophecy at all. Vespasian is. Well, you're right. You you do this through a Jesus story, and how are you going to incorporate Vespasian into that? And how are you going to are you going to make up traditions where Jesus? Uh, you know, responds to emperors. I mean, it's not a part of the tradition. Yeah, so yeah. you have to, so it wouldn't make sense, right? I mean, so why doesn't he do it? Well, because he's working with traditions that he has. He, he, has to, he has to use these traditions to create a story that does what he wants it to do. It doesn't make sense to, all of a sudden, Jesus starts, you know, spouting out, uh, you know, uh, claims that, you know, any Roman emperor is, you know, unjust. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. And, and, and the early, I think, the early uh, church would recognize that it doesn't fit because they know these traditions. Why is Jesus all of a sudden talking about emperors here? Um, I don't know. It's just weird, right? Yeah. And, and then another thing I would say. So there's one, it, it's a Jesus story. So the, one, it's a Jesus story. Two, two, well, no, one, self-protection. Two, it's a Jesus story. Three, um, Romans, Jason Whitlark. Who, do you know Jason Whitlark? Is it? You're connected to Baylor, and he's a Baylor. Um, has written an excellent book on Hebrews' engagement with the Roman imperial realities. It's fascinating, mm -hmm. but he does a lot of work on the use of figurative language and how how Romans were trained to say something without saying it. Does that make sense? To mm -hmm. say something in a way to subtly veil their critique, um, especially of political power, and and politicians did this all the time. And, and not only were they trained to say it that way, but others were trained to find it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, that, so that's a, just a part of writing and a part of the way they would do things. They were subtly involved and it was, it was more sophisticated and, and, and probably it was safer, right? How are you going to critique the mission who, you know, doesn't like to be critiqued and is pretty, uh, you know... Uh, he can, he can fly off the handle pretty quickly and maybe kill you. Well, you find ways of doing it by being very subtle and so did not plausible deniability and these exactly sorts of things yeah i mean and and that we have evidence of this that roman politicians did this and roman uh you know roman historians did this and there was a way and sometimes they might be more bold than than other times but but that was just a way you were trained to do things and so that mark would do it is i don't think surprising so those are my those are my three responses to that critique which i've heard many times um <laughs> You know, but uh, yeah, I don't know if that's convincing to 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 my crit critics or to the people that kind of resists reading kind of the New Testament text as a response to imperial realities. But it's persuaded me. So, <laughs> other thoughts, other questions. My last question is actually the last thought that you put into the book. So oh, okay. this is all about Christology. Yeah. And so a big question that we're asking as we read mark is uh who is jesus mm -hmm. uh, is jesus god mm -hmm. so yeah. what about uh the question of jesus being yahweh um and the titles of jesus that we see in mark so how does that fit into this question of of imperial power is is mark mm -hmm. ignoring the question of whether jesus is yahweh um should we be looking for that in mark Oh, great question. And my thoughts on this are, are evolving, have evolved in the last month. <laughs> so, okay. In the book, uh, with, with the emergence of the early high Christology movement, uh, uh, what are we, 20-ish years into that? 20, oh, book at night, probably 30 now. Um, you know, there's been a move to look for, to, to, I mean, Paul's been one of the favorites to find early high Christology, and you see it in Hebrews, and I think you see it in uh, Revelation, you see it in a number of places, obviously the Gospel of John. Um, well, some have gone to Mark and said, oh, we can see it here, but most say, but not explicitly, 
right? Uh, and in my book, that's what I that's what I, I go with. I say I think I, I don't think Marx's upfront um, explicit Christological message is in, is is um, explicitly about Jesus as Yahweh. And and many who have read Mark, who are early high Christology people, said, and 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 in my book, I say I tend to agree with them that Mark's not explicitly, but he is implicitly, and that there's clues uh, at different places that Mark leaves the reader without screaming at you, Jesus is Yahweh. Um, you know, it, it 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 it's the text is highly suggestive, or Mark wants to imply to you that he is Yahweh. Um, I think the best example is Mark chapter 6, Jesus walking on the water. And in that story, you have, um, first of all, Jesus walks on water. Well, uh, I think it's it's in Job 9, 8, I believe. I could be wrong on that. But, but it talks about Yahweh, only Yahweh walks on the waves of the sea, right? Or something like that. And, 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 the, and the language Mark uses is almost identical to the Septuaginta language used in that verse in. It's almost like it's a quote. Huh. Um, and, and so there's a strong parallel there that only Yahweh does this and then Jesus is doing it. And then you have this idea of Jesus. And then this weird detail in that story in Mark, which is odd. It says Jesus intended to pass them by, meaning pass the disciples by. Matthew drops that. It doesn't have that detail. So what's it there for? Well, in, in Old Testament theophanies, you have... In the two prominent ones, which is Yahweh on Mount, revealing himself to Moses on Mount Sinai and Yahweh revealing himself to Elijah on Mount Horeb, um, passing by languages in both of them. And you have in the story, in the, in the, I think it's blank, it's Exodus 33, 34, somewhere right around there. Um, Yahweh says, I'm going to hide, tells Moses, I'm going to hide you in the, in the cleft of the rock and, and then I'm going to pass you by, right? And, it, and he uses that language. And in the Septuagint, it's the same word Mark uses. And I think he uses it four times in a matter of like 15 verses, right? This, the passing by, I'm going to pass you by, I'm going to pass you by. And then it says, and Yahweh passed him by. And then, Mo, uh, then on Mount Horeb, it's the same language as used. So you come out onto the mountain, the, 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 I think it's the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. And because the, the Lord is Yahweh is going to pass you by. And so what's going on? What's Jesus doing? He's walking on a water lock Yahweh, and then he's intending to pass by, right? Which is theophanic language. And then you have um, when they see Jesus and they, they cry out, Jesus, what does Jesus say to them? He says, it is I, but in Greek he says, ego me," right? Which is um, not an exact citation of the divine name but it is a par- it is you taking from what Yahweh says to Moses when he says who should you say who should I say sent me Yahweh says um, I am who I am ego and in in the Septuagint it's ego ego me right it's a, it's certainly a reference to the divine name and Jesus says it and and it's it, he says it while he intends to pass by and what's interesting in Exodus is uh, Moses is told I will pass you by and while I do I will while I do I will speak my name. Right? Huh. And here you have Jesus intending to pass by saying, Ego me. So you take all this together. Jesus walks on water. He intends to pass by. He, and then he says, Ego me. Right? Um, you could, if you, were, if you were not familiar with the Old Testament, you could read that and you just, you could read it very naturally. It might be weird. Why is he passing by? Does he not want to help or what? I don't know. Um, <laughs> there's a lot. But, but if you're a Jew reading it, and if Mark's, and, and most think Mark's a Jew, what's he done? He's woven into the text this kind of subtle, implicit, if you're paying attention, you know who I'm saying Jesus is. Yahweh. So that's just one example of the implicit nature. Okay, I'm going to... Uh, and, and now, how have my thoughts been changing? Um, in this, I, I mentioned earlier that I'm starting... I'm doing some work on, on early Christology. Um, but I'm not going to say very much about it now. <laughs> but... We'll interview you in that book. Yeah, oh, that would be fun. That would be for me. But you'd have to... You've interviewed David Wilhite before, right? Mm-hmm. I'm working on this book with him. So is interview with, us both. Is it IVP or is it? Uh, it the publisher is yet to be determined. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> or named. Uh, so anyway, but it's, it, we're in the works. So anyway, um, I wonder if it's more explicit than we think. But in saying that, I don't know that it's something. I, I think in Mark, it's just something that's in the air. I, I, I just think for Mark, it's not like I'm intending to teach you that Jesus is Yahweh. I wonder if it's not, that's just accepted. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that Mark just tells the story with the traditions and all of this and it's there. 
And, and what we think is implicit is maybe not explicit, but it's also not shocking. Hmm. So that the entire early church wasn't what later becomes Ebionites, like uh, a lot of German scholars assume. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That I would. Yup. Do you think, think there's so. an assumption that they already have Paul informing their Christology? And so maybe then that's not as a. Uh... Part of this, part of my work is reconstructing the whole kind of how, um, yeah, yes, or at least the ideas that Paul's reflecting, right? I don't know if they have Paul, but they at least have what is influencing Paul to mm-hmm. think this way. Um, and a lot of it has to do with kind of reconstructions of Second Temple Judaism, Second Temple Messianism, mm-hmm. and um, understanding how, how is the Messiah understood to be related to Yahweh in, in is there precedence for those ideas being connected in, in a way that we haven't recognized before um, and might the early Christians simply be drawing on what already exists in Judaism. I won't say anymore, but, but that's kind of where I'm headed. And, and um, I, you know, anyway, I'll stop there. Uh, but that's, that's what I'm exploring. So re- even now I might say, and maybe it's more than explicit or more than implicit. Maybe it's explicit as well. Hmm. Um, yeah. We'll see when the book. Comes we'll see. Out. We'll see when the book comes out. Yeah, uh, it could be. Is a, Jesus yeah. Yahweh? Tune in next time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. For Mark or for all, who knows? For whoever in the New Testament. Um, yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Is that, is that good? Any, any more? Excellent. Well, it was fun to talk about. It's that I mean, it's obviously I've been, these ideas have been in my mind for a long time, and I'm really excited that they're out. And IVP did a great job with the book, and uh, and I'm and happy it's out, and happy some people are reading it. Which is yeah. Great. Thanks for mm-hmm. writing it, and also thanks to IVP uh, University Press for sending us copies of the book so that we could uh, do this interview. Absolutely. Thanks, guys.